When I made it to my home place, I found triumph of the will. Where once lay a shining city, stood a fortress on a I'm Henry. This is Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for joining us. For those new to the podcast, BT, Danny, and I are three leftist combat veterans who take the military and veteran stories of the day and provide some much-needed historical context and examination. Dr. Jeffrey Kay, uh, welcome back to Fortress on a Hill. Thanks for coming to chat with us today. Thanks, Chris. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Before we get into the the main topic we're going to talk about today, I was wondering if you could give our listeners a little bit of background on M- the MK Ultra program. Mm, okay. Well, MK is a uh, ult and then ultra. Um, ultra was no one knows exactly why the CIA gives uh, names to their programs, but it's it's thought that ultra was also the name given, of course, to a top secret. Uh, uh, Crypto, uh, cryptography program during World War II, and just the idea that this was ultra secret, MK Ultra, and it was very ultra secret. And it's, um, and there were another a number of other programs associated with it. The MK was just an acronym, uh, not an acronym, but a, a, prefix, a prefix that the CIA assigned to these types of programs. And there were there were other ones. There was MK Naomi. There was MK Search. Um, you know, there were there were others. The, the, it was a program uh, that had literally um, almost two hundred subprojects, and what the CIA did is it contracted out to uh, academia and to medical doctors and um, universities to conduct a wide ranging program of research into behavioral modification. Yeah, all sorts of things, hypnosis, drugs, um, psychological ways of understanding how humans break down. And it was conducted over a period of years from the early 50s until uh, 1970, uh, well, really until the program was exposed, although somewhere in there it switched names and called itself MK Search in the, in the late 60s, I believe. But the MK ultra programs, you know, went on for over two decades. And before MKUltra was uh, um, created, there were other types of programs like that. Some run in conjunction with the U.S. Navy, such as Operation Chatter in the late 40s, in which they were looking at the ways to use drugs for mind control. And that sounds crazy, mind control. That's not my terminology. That's the military and the CIA's own terminology. So if people go, he's a mind control conspiracy buff. No, I'm just following what the government says. In fact, um, I had discovered and published that uh, in a directive from the U.S. Navy uh, just uh, during the Iraq War, um, not the directive wasn't about the Iraq War. I'm just placing it in time. You know, one of the things it did was it indicated that the Undersecretary of you know Defense for Intelligence was to be the uh, key figure to address um, um, any inquiries into uh, mind control research. 
that was done by the Navy. I go, well, I didn't know the Navy was doing mind control research. You just told me they are now. <laughs> but what, what, what that research is, of course, is classified. And um, MKUltra um, interrog uh, included interrogation research. Um, some of this research was um, conducted on POW, uh, not well, fake POWs, um, a program known today as SEER, Survival, Escape, Resistance, um, uh, uh, Survival, Survival evasion. evasion, Resistance, Escape. Yes, thank you. And this program, um, which used to be just known as kind of generically as a survival program, um, had us had antecedents all the way back to post-World War II. And, um, a big portion of that program was to put uh, men into uh, soldiers, officers, and intelligence agents as part of their training into mock torture camps. And um, the torture was pretty real. In fact, um, for a long time, they waterboarding was part of that uh, torture. But the idea was that it would only go so far. Everyone in it knew it was a military or intelligence program of training. But... Um, and it was out of that, uh, nevertheless, it was so severe and um, that one researcher found that, for instance, testosterone levels, you know, dropped um, so low while these men were held in captivity that they were the lower, as low as the lowest ever recorded, which were coming from, you know, heart patients who had, had major surgery on their heart. So this, is, this has profound effects. And in fact, the CIA, um, as we'll see, is very interested in understanding and measuring um, how human beings react under stress. And that was also a huge portion of MKUltra. And the results and what was learned from these studies was finally codified in a, a manual, a manual uh, for torture um, called Cube, known to, as QBARK, K-U-B-A-R-K. It was really, uh, the entire manual isn't about torture, only about um, a quarter of it is. It's about how to get, uh, how to interrogate from the CIA standpoint individuals. But um, a, a good quarter, perhaps a tad over, is, you know, related to using, you know, drugs, hypnosis, um, you know, various forms of physical torture and psychological torture on uh, prisoners to, uh, um, even though, even though in the manual they were quite clear that the results weren't, you know, uh, of the information that was obtained by such torture could not be trusted because people just, you know, human nature, a person being tortured is apt to just say whatever to stop the pain, to stop the torture. And uh, so, in fact, um, the torture that the CIA did was not primarily to gain intelligence. It was to gain assets, you know, to turn these men into penetration agents. Yes, sometimes to get um, to try and get information, but to also uh, to use them for all sorts of purposes, propaganda and show trials. And finally, I would say as, as uh, experimental subjects, which is what a big part of what we'll talk about here today, because that's what they finally did. They created and and we've caught them. Um, and I, I'm not alone in believing this. The Physicians for Human Rights, a, a, a Nobel Prize winning organization, you know, has, has twice put out, you know, uh, um, 
kind of white papers, if you will, about how, you know how the CIA torture program was in, and uh, really a big experiment. Even Jane Mayer, who has abandoned the topic for the most part, way back during the Iraq War period, wrote an article in the New Yorker called "The Experiment," that mentioned that uh, the people were taking um, the, the CIA people in the CIA were taking inspiration in their current interrogation torture program from uh, past experiences. And she pointed out uh, um, Operation Phoenix, which was, of course, a huge detention interrogation program overseen by the CIA and conducted largely by South Vietnamese forces. But, but there was uh, a lot of CIA uh, management. And, and tens of thousands of people by the CIA's own reckoning were, were murdered in that program during the Vietnam War. Anyway, may, that may take us a field from MKUltra, but you can see the branch, it, things branch out from MKUltra. Um, when it was exposed, by the way, just by a, a really a miracle, um, that like the torture tapes that were destroyed, the videotapes that were, we know were destroyed, and, and the current CIA director, Gina Haspel, um, was you know, part of the destruction of the evidence of the torture. Um, um, in the black, uh, the black site in Thailand that the CIA ran where they tortured Abu Zubaydah the, um, and then some others. The um, Gina ha oh, uh, MK Ultra records were destroyed, um, uh, of which there were God knows how many uh, records, but uh, destroyed systematically in the early 1970s as it became clear that the revelations that were you know, coming out of the by the press and by leaks and a general aversion to the U.S. experience in uh, Vietnam, um, they, they, they tried their best to hide it, and they thought, in fact, they did. But um, by a fluke, they forgot one thing, and they forgot that there was a lot of, the, you know, the CIA is a bureaucracy after all, and it, you know, has a budget, and it monitors that budget like any good organization would. And they kept all the receipts for all the, all the things they did and all the research, and um, which in sometimes descriptions of what that was for, you know, as, as, uh, as a, an accounting. Uh, so, so these accounting-derived records um, ultimately were rescued via FOIA. And, um, and that's pretty much how we know that in the testimony of a few survivors. Um, who, who are not, we don't know how many survivors. You know, of course, this, the MK Ultra famously was used um, um, to um, an unwilling, unwilling and unwitting people in the United States. Right? They set up uh, um, like uh, whorehouses, um, and, and and they did this in San Francisco. They did it in New York, and um, you know, unsuspecting Johns would come in for the prostitute, and they would drug them, and they would see how they would react. I mean, it's just just bizarre. Um, no, it's 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 absolutely breathtaking to to hear. Yeah, um, millions and millions of dollars, by the way, millions and millions and millions of dollars, and some of the top U.S. scientists were involved in all of this. So, so, um, so, Dr. K, take us take us through just the your impressions of the two programs and. What, how, how MK Ultra fits, especially the Sears stuff, fits sure. into what was happening. And uh, just for everybody's sanity at home, we'll refer to Program A as 
the experimental one, the one that everybody knows about, mm-hmm. and program B can be the other one, just so we can differentiate them a little bit. Right. Um, I'll just preface what I'm going to say by saying, by saying program A and B, or, you know, however names we give these two different uh, are associated, but, but administratively different programs that the CIA ran in the, during the Bush administration, is that this was a, these, uh, the CIA's use of torture is something that appears to be constantly mutating and evolving. So the two torture programs, we're looking at a snapshot in time, approximately late 2001 um, to say 2006 or so, when the the official RDI program or program A um, was shut down, or at least supposedly was shut down. (laughs) Yeah, so program A, also known as the Rendition, Detention, and Interrogation Program, was a it was an, a program that used so-called enhanced interrogation techniques, and most of your listeners will be familiar with the idea that the CIA used waterboarding. They used uh, um, a number of techniques that were um, came from the SEER program that they used in those mock torture camps, but they they switched it around rather than using uh, uh, limited versions of that type of torture, slamming people into walls, you know, uh, you know, putting them in dark confinement chambers or rooms or boxes um, they, and, and other such things. They, um, they took those type of techniques and then they used them as real torture. You know, they used them um, with um, certain parameters which were set ultimately by doctors uh, within the CIA so that the detainees didn't die. But um, it was highly, um, uh, well, it was, a, it was highly uh, compartmentalized, meaning it was, it was uh, a very top secret program that was run by the Special Missions Unit of the Center for uh, the Counterterrorism Center within CIA. The Special Mission Division um, you know, would take use top secret, um, oh, excuse me, even above top secret, probably what are known as special access program um, uh, classification to make it near impossible to, um, to know what was going on. A special access program known as a SAP, S-A-P, is um, the highest level that I know of. There might be one higher for all I know. Or, but it's extreme, you know, if you even admit that you know about that program, you violated uh, the SAP and you're going to go to jail, right? So when uh, uh, it took a long time and some leaks, and even still today, that for the parameters of, of the CIA's rendition, detention, interrogation program to become understood. And one of the ways this was confusing is because there was another program, which we are calling here Program B. Program B. Um, was not highly organized, at least within the detention center. Prisoners were left shackled to walls for, you know, hours and hours and on end. Nobody was watching them. They were just left there for days. Um, the, the t- they did not use enhanced interrogation techniques unless they had special permission to do that. And um, generally, they used something that the CIA called standard interrogation techniques. That's their terminology. And the standard uh, um, 
interrogation techniques, you know, included things like sleep deprivation, solitary confinement, loud noises, nakedness, use of diapers, and reduced caloric intake, which is their way of putting it. I'd call it partial starvation. Right? They didn't want to kill these people. You want to starve them, but you want to make them weak. The reason you want to, by the way, is an aside important point that bo both programs and CIA's general um, uh, general model for breaking people down was uh, codified for them in the late 1950s in some research that was done by American psychologists and psychiatrists, and they came up with a program or an approach called the DDD. It's three Ds. D is in dog, but these Ds stood for um, dependency. The ability, which is weakness, and dread, which is fear. So if you apply these, these different, you make a person totally dependent upon you, you instill them with a ton of fear, and you make them physically um, debilitated. And um, you take those three people together, and the idea is that you can control them. That's their model for human control. And... Um, so the, the other program B, CIA uh, torture program, was, which was run by the Center for, um, uh, excuse me, the Counterterrorism Center also, the CTC, but was not the same thing as program A, which was run by the Special Missions Division and had been organized by another group within the CIA known as the Office of Technical Services, OTS. And OTS... When I saw that for the first time when, um, in the, during the release of the CIA's uh, 2004 Inspector General report <laughs> on that torture program, where we got a lot of our first peek into what the, the horror that was going on in the CIA black sites, um, OTS was formerly known by other names, including Technical Services Division um, and PSD. I don't want to, I shouldn't throw so many acronyms out. It's just, it's not that important. But the main point is that this was the part of the CIA that ran MKUltra for years and years and years before it was turned over to their security directorate in the 1960s. But for over a decade, and, and for all I know, uh, they were associated with it throughout in some way. We don't have a complete history, unfortunately, internal history of the CIA, uh, uh, MK Ultra program because while well, they destroyed many records and they don't want us to know, but um, so that's program A. Program excuse me, program B and program A again had doctors there all the time. They had they were recording what was going on in the interrogations and in the, during the detention all the time. When they put Abu Zubaydah, this blew me away, man. When they put Abu Zubaydah in a confinement box, kind of like a coffin and kept him in there, um, you know, trying to prey upon claustrophobia and fears. Um, they had little video cameras actually recording what he was doing and looked like inside the coffin, right, inside the box, the, the what they called close confinement box. And um, that's how much they were – in, in, in Program B, nobody was watching these prisons. You take a guy – you know, chain him up to the wall, you go away and come back in three or four days. And um, it occurred to me as I was reviewing for this program, by the way, that program B could conceivably be related to program A. Program A was definitely, in this way, program A was definitely an experimental program. They had doctors there, they recorded, 
Um, they later were, uh, uh, there was a huge argument within the CIA about um, doing research on effectiveness of these different techniques and whether that could even be done. And um, the, the people in CIA, uh, some of them were very uh, worried that they were crossing the line into obvious illegal human research on prisoners. And uh, there was a back and forth on this within the CIA. Um, and a number of people, myself included, physicians for human rights, ethicists, medical ethicists and others would say, yeah, you did cross the line. And, you know, but they had, you know, the program B um, could have been uh, what we call a control group, right? So here, over here, you had the prisoners who were being subjected to this very scientifically derived. And by that, I mean, they defined very carefully what the techniques were, how to use them, how much water would go into a cup to pour on a person's face exactly, you know, this many you know, milliliters or whatever, and, um, you know, and how many hours they could be subjected to this. And it was, everything was gone back and forth with cables between C, uh, CIA authorities and the interrogators in the field. So um, that's in program A. In program B, they, you know, if, some, if something happened to a detainee medically, they had to call for a medical tech to come to the Black site prison, they didn't even have anyone on site. Totally different. And, and that was what led to finally in November 2002, the death of, of a, uh, um, um, freezing to death, uh, uh, prisoner Gull Rockman. Um, at least that, that's the official story that he froze to death. His body is uh, uh, missing. His body was never sent to his family. We don't know what happened to it. So there's no sign, there's no like autopsy. Uh, to look at. Well, there was an autopsy for Goldbach, but no independent um, way to um, ass assess what happened to him, totally anyway. So um, the, uh, the standard techniques also you know, were used at the program B and the enhanced techniques in program A. So that was the difference between the two programs. I'm listening to this and, you know, I'm aware of some of this material and some of it I'm learning for the first time. Yeah. What strikes me, and I'm, I'm wondering what your opinion is, given the record of failure, lies, um, just secrecy in the litany of the CIA's programs from MKUltra all the way up to enhanced interrogation, mm -hmm. why do you think that even mainstream liberals today mm -hmm. have so much faith in the CIA and other intelligence agencies? Like, what explains that? You know, after the, in other words, after the church committee investigation of the early 70s, yeah. after all this has been exposed, why are people still so willing to put their faith in the CIA? Yeah, it's quite, it's quite startling. And some of that, I mean, you, you can read in the paper, the CIA, and this is just, in very, I think, a New York Times story, uh, the, the CIA, uh, you know, uh, um, anally raped uh, its prisoners, and it uh, used a blender, whatever they used to chop up, uh, who missed another food and stick it up a guy's rectum. Oh, but then literally a few minutes later, they're talking about, yeah, well, the CIA says this is the story of what's happening in Venezuela. This is the story of, you know, now they've been trying to manipulate us into war with Iran. The, uh, yeah, why? Well, I have a, you know, I, as your listeners, I presume know, if they didn't forget, I was also a psychologist and worked 
clinically with patients for a couple of decades, a little over a couple of decades. And, um, you know, I have to say, you know, that people, um, it's human nature to want to adhere to some kind of uh, um, grouping, to feel that one belongs to something, one's family, you know, one's neighborhood, um, some group, or, or a nation, or a, a people, or a nation state. And it, it, when you have the research in what's known as cognitive dissonance shows that, which has been um, a lot of research done on this over the decades, that if you present evidence contrary to a person's belief systems, particularly um, when I say belief systems, these are belief systems that are rooted in emotional attachment, right? Uh, then um, you're going to disregard that other information if it, if it contrasts too, too greatly with what you believe you know, right? So if, if you were taught, as I was when I was growing up, that the United States is a beacon for liberty and freedom around the world, and that the other people, you know, these other countries that are enemies are, you know, are out, outrageous monsters who put millions of people in concentration camps, and, you know, and, uh, and then, then if you get evidence that says something different than that, you, it just does, it sort of like does not compute. It can't take it in. It's really like a mental block. And um, that's what I believe psychologically why. Now, there's another reason, of course, that feeds this, and that's that many people, mainstream liberals who at least are politicians or in the press, they, um, they are, are kind of run by the CIA or they are beholden to the government or CIA. You know, there's a lot of, uh, there was uh, um, Carl Bernstein, of course, did a famous article in Rolling Stone, you know, some many years ago now you know, detailing, you know, how the CIA used uh, media assets. And uh, there's no reason to believe that didn't continue. And then there's those who don't officially uh, belong to the uh, uh, our, our assets of the CIA, but just, you know, they know what side of uh, um, the bread there is buttered. And, and they, they, you know, they know that they're not going to get anywhere if they oppose you know, uh, with, the, with the mainstream, you know, their careers, if you oppose U.S. Uh, um, policies like that. So do you think that Donald Trump plays into this in any way? And let me explain what I mean. Mm -hmm. There's all this talk about how the deep state is against Trump. There's uh, suddenly there's a love affair between like MSNBC liberals and institutions like the FBI, the CIA and the military. Mm -hmm. um, this idea that, you know, they're the adults in the room who are trying to give sound advice to this crazy man, Donald Trump. And, and I think that's a really dangerous uh, formulation. And I don't know if you see him playing any role in the movement of mainstream liberals uh, further into the camp of the intelligence agencies. Well, I don't know that that was the intent, but it certainly seems to have um, unfolded that way. I, Donald Trump, you know, is a loyal servant to the powers who run this country. And uh, they don't all agree um, on what he thinks or you know, like any politician. But um, the difference was he, I think they just felt they, they couldn't totally control him in the way that, you know, Obama and before him Bush, and before him, you know, uh, um, Clinton, before him George Herbert Walker Bush, and all the way back um, to the Bay of Pigs, to Kennedy, really. 
and and the, the disputes that Kennedy had with his military and intelligence agencies that were quite huge. Whether or not um, <laughs> that led to his death is is subject for other people and other shows. But you might want to do sometime. But the uh, um, you know, they, they don't like uh, that, that Bush comes on and says, as he did the other day, you know, hey, not the other day, but not that long ago. Oh, uh, Russia uh, was, um, or the old Soviet Union was justified in invading Afghanistan because they were going after terrorists. What? Oh, my God. How could they say that? Blah, blah, blah. But if you go back and actually look at um, what pe uh, people um, in the uh, earlier administrations and, and Cold War scholars have to say, yeah, they... They saw, um, they said that Zygmunt Brzezinski was asked, uh, did you have any problem sending uh, aid? What do you, now, in retrospect, are you sorry that you, uh, um, you're the, uh, beginning in the Carter administration, that the U.S. supported Islamic uh, terror, you know, fundamentalists and terrorists um, in Afghanistan? He says, no, no, I don't have a problem. The, the, it brought about the fall. If it helped bring about the fall of the Soviet Union, that was fine. So they had no problem, Zygmunt Brzezinski had no problem in saying that um, the Soviets had, uh, were there fighting Islamic terrorists. So Bush said it, well, I mean, not Bush, Trump. So he said they don't like that because the official story now is, of course, that, you know, this, the, the, this evil empire um, of the Soviet Union, this was the Reagan narrative, you know, um, invaded this helpless country where people were just trying to um, peacefully conduct their faith. They're trying to pull the same crap in uh, chi about China now with the so-called concentration camps that are run by China in uh, um, in the far west of that uh, country against uh, with Uyghurs. So, uh, yeah, that's. I had seen that you had uh, you had mentioned in an article that you wrote about this about how that the two programs existing uh, side by side created a bit of a stovepipe effect. Will you tell us a bit about that? The two programs existing, a stovepipe effect. Um, right now I'm trying to remember what, you don't happen to remember which article jogged my memory. Though. I want to say it was your, the main medium article that was about, about the two programs, just that the, in, in that one, one hand wouldn't know what the other hand was doing. Even oh. though they were doing something right at the right. same time. Right. Well, that was part of the, this program, this program, program A was so secret, right? It was, a, it was a special access program, need to know only. And it was run by, you know, and it had been set up within the, the office of technical, by the office of technical services. Um, James Mitchell and Bruce Jessen, who uh, were former SEER psychologists, had been hired as contractors to do, quote, research on, you know, in the field. Um, for the CIA, for and they worked in a, in a, in a division known as um, the Operational Assessments Division in inside of OTS. Um, and so, what I was talking about there that you mentioned wasn't so much a stovepiping, but a the way uh, the kind of a bureaucratic uh, mess that took place, that whose the entire content of which unfortunately is not open to us. The this, my article, which was based on a memoir by the chief of the CIA's Office of Medical Services, is really our first look in a documentary form into what really was going on within the CIA during this period. 
um, period roughly from 9-11 till um, 2006. Um, the, the high watermark of CIA torture operations and their rendition um, torture program. And the Operational Assessments Division, by the way, was uh, related to earlier forms of uh, uh, earlier organizations within OTS, in particular the Behavioral Activities Branch, which had helped create during MKUltra and they created the QBARC manual. And uh, the Operational Assessments Division included OTS psychologists who were, they dug, they were into um, the old torture research that had happened during the uh, 50s and the 60s and 70s, early 70s. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're uh, chomping at the bit to get a chance to do their own research, you know. Um, uh, but the, what happened was OTS was uh, uh, ultimately cut out, or at least there was a bureaucratic problem between OTS and uh, the Office of Medical Services. And at a certain point, uh, OTS uh, um, staff were, were, were shut out. They didn't have clearance anymore. So you didn't know what was going on. Uh, and it moved, uh, you know, this was uh, part of some internal um, arguments that were happening over the nature of their experiment, experimental program and whether they would do the type of research that some of the people, including the CIA Inspector General and some in Congress, wanted them to do, which was so-called effectiveness research on the prisoners, um, which was opposed by uh, Mitchell and Justin, interestingly enough, and was opposed by um, others, uh, the Office of Medical Services as well. But the stovepiping, I think you're referring, it might come from the fact that that was the, 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 the program uh, a in particular, um, the information or at least uh, details of what was happening in these interrogations was being shared directly and almost in real time, apparently, as ABC reported, I think, at some point, um, with the, um, you know, high Bush administration officials, you know, who would be watching on closed circuit TV. So, you know, the reason that's stovepiping is that, of course, stovepiping refers to sending the information without analysis um, directly up to, you know, the top with no intervening uh, analysis of that raw data, raw info. So, for instance, you're torturing, to give your listeners a very clear example, uh, the CIA is torturing somebody and they get the guy to say, yeah, that's right, I, you know, I handed a, you know, uh, um, an improvised explosive device over to this guy in my camp, and he used it to kill American soldiers. Um, okay, now we got that info. Of course, and so do they. So does Vice President Cheney. He's listening in, as that said. Now, so there's, and he takes that and to be the reality, when in fact, you know, that's not necessarily what uh, um, you know what should be uh, uh, taken from that. It may have been obvious to. Um, analysts who looked at those things that uh, the, the guy just said something crazy to stop the torture because the, the IED he talked about uh, wasn't in existence at that time. But Jamie, you know, so Stoff, you know, so there was, because these programs were run so closely with um, government officials that the intelligence, whatever intelligence was used, um, uh, wasn't very accurate. 
and there's a lot of disputes between the different sides um, about how accurate it was, of course. You know, like, you know, what was it? Uh, was the torture um, involved in the information, for instance, that got bin Laden, something the CIA touts on the other side? For me, the informational aspect of the CIA programs is minimal. Um, I probably underplay that a little bit, but the reason I do is because the other aspects of the program are totally ignored. The CIA, you know, the, the um, program A, the rendition, detention, interrogation program was primarily uh, a program of um, uh, an experimental program on how to break people down and on the, how these different techniques um, worked to, to do that. And, and I believe also, for instance, I mentioned just a moment ago, the Operational Assessments Division. There was a psychiatrist in 2002, 2003, that was working for the Operational Assessments Division. He was a Yale psychologist, psych, excuse me, not a psychologist, psychiatrist, um, by the name of Charles Morgan. And uh, Dr. Morgan, at the same time, was um, working um, to help develop a medical device to study um, heart rate variability, a wireless device to measure heart rate variability. Um, most of your listeners probably don't know this, but heart rate variability is an excellent stat, statistic, uh, derived from you know, medical testing, monitoring. It's a form of monitoring uh, that can tell you how much a person is um, reacting uh, to stress. And this same psychiatrist had written articles about uncontrollable stress. He'd written about the research done on the seer captives. And, um, and here he is in the same division with James Mitchell and Bruce Jessen at the same time the torture is being done, developing a medical monitoring device, while other people in his division are using, uh, are in a program that involves high levels of medical monitoring of prisoners. Well, that's an, ex that's an experimental program. Now, whether or not Morgan, you know, I can't make that final, connect the final dots. So, you know, and Morgan, Dr. Morgan has since said, of course, he's against torture, and there's some uh, uh, indication that he spoke out against it within the CIA, but I, you know, I don't know. What, it does, what I do know is that it's highly suspicious that one of the you know, CIA psychiatrists um, involved in the, the part of uh, OTS that was um, helping manufacture the enhanced interrogation techniques was also involved in research and developing uh, a new medical monitoring device. You know. Um, so these are the kinds of things that, you know, and I apologize because I don't remember now, uh, if I'm answering your question or if I just went off on a tangent. Um, no, no, you absolutely did. The guys and I love doing the podcast, being able to share our experiences in the military with allies and supporters means the world to us, but we can't do all the work. We need you to share an episode of ours with someone, anyone who you think might be affected by it. Maybe a, a young person looking to join the military or parents advocating for one, uh, conscientious citizens who care about the violence the U.S. wages in their name, advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment that the military creates for minorities and inflicts on them around the globe, and anyone else you think it might affect. Please take a moment and share this with them. Now, our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First, there's Patreon, where we're very blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters 
helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can keep us going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I probably can't think of right now. So let's bring out our honorary producers, and they are Matthew Ho, Will Arends, Gage Counts, Fahim Shirazi, Henry Zamoda, James Higgins, James O'Barr, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, and Matt the Virgin Slayer. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you so much. However, if you'd like to contribute and Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Or check out our store on Spreadshirt. The great Bill Karpinski did a really awesome job making our first shirt, which you can find at shop.spreadshirt.com forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Make sure you check on the site there for promo codes before you order. And now, let's get back to the podcast. Mentioning about James Mitchell, I, I found it curious that he was actually hired to write a book on Al-Qaeda members' resistance to interrogation techniques prior to 9-11. And I was wondering what you thought about that. Well, yes, there's a lot of, um, he was hired uh, prior to 9-11, not a book, but, a, well, I'm not sure if he, I'd have to go back and look. If he was uh, um, asked to do the, uh, I think actually it was post 9-11 that he was asked to write um, a, a mo- you know, a paper um, on, I think it was even in December of uh, 2001, to write a paper on the um, counter-resistance techniques of Al-Qaeda. And I, you know, I've tried to get that paper. Some of it was released finally um, to somebody via FOIA. And, um, you know, it certainly backs up the kinds of things I'm saying that this was uh, here in today's interview. Um, but you're right that James Mitchell was hired prior to 9-11 um, uh, to work for the Office of Technical Services and to work in the uh, Operational Assessments Division. His boss was another psych- CIA psychologist by the name of Kirk Hubbard. Um, and they were contract, you know, he was a contract employee. You know, he writes about it in his book, how, he, you know, how they came to him. He doesn't, you know... Um, say exactly what he was doing. Um, supposedly, he was doing cross-cultural research. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I think they were looking. Yeah, I mean, cross-cultural research is a code name for they're looking for ways to um, do a special experiment on on Muslims, right? On people, in, and they wanted a wide stretch. If you think about the people, particularly at Guantanamo, where re- a lot of research was done, and where the CIA had a black site as well. Um, you know, you you had uh, people by the nature, of course, of, of the Afghanistan war, um, but also um, in terms of who from it was shipped to Guantanamo. It was a wide variety of people of different ethnic groups, and uh, the reason for that is that different ethnic groups have different biological markers and different biological responses that would be 
not of interest, you know, not so dramatic that you and I would even notice, but would be of interest to researchers who are looking for the fine tooth comb. And in this, by the way, the uh, uh, the United States government follows in the footsteps of the torturers and uh, illegal experimenters from Japan's Unit 731, um, who did biologic-conducted research in and then operational use of biological weapons during World War II against China. And the, you know, those, that personnel, those personnel, many of them ended up working for the Americans and certainly turned over a lot of their data. And one of their data was included research done on US POWs um, that the Japanese held um, where we know that they did uh, research on uh, uh, um, how dysentery affected a Caucasian population versus a non-Caucasian population. This is the kind of things you look at. They, if, you're, if you're an insane maniac who's using science for evil purposes, as Unit 731 was, and as the CIA today is, um, it's so hard, and yet, it, it, to me, as I was reviewing this information to talk today, once again, the thing that just kills me, I guess, Danny, you were alluding to this, is that uh, um, why is it, even though it is, uh, there have been articles published from the LA Times, the Washington Post, making quite clear that um, this was a research program that the CIA was conducting, and when organizations that have legitimate clout in the world, like PHR, Physicians for Human Rights, talk about experiments being done um, on prisoners that nothing, you know, it doesn't penetrate. It doesn't, it doesn't get anywhere in the public discourse. Most people have no idea. They never heard of it. They don't know what it means, and, and they wouldn't know how to talk about it. But um, this, this, my article shows that, at least in relation to Program A, you know, the, the people involved, the doctors and the interrogators even, um, who were involved, like Mitchell and Jessen, were very concerned that they were going to be prosecuted for use of um, uh, illegal experimentation, kind of like the Nazis did. In the, if anyone's ever seen the movie Judgment at Nuremberg, um, you will remember the sections that had to do with illegal experiments done on concentration camp victims. So uh, they were very concerned about this, and they tried, but they, you know, they didn't even want it to be talked about. And so, for instance, in the document from the Chief of Office of Medical Services that was declassified and is the basis for my, the primary basis for my article, the Chief uh, uh, um, briefly talks, and this was the part, by the way, that hit the mainstream press about truth drugs, right? CIA discussed truth drugs. Headline in the New York Times, Washington Post, right? Um, during, you know, but they, guess what? They chose not to use them. That, and that was, and they just, the press left it at that. It was really just clickbait because it really, they didn't really go into much detail about it. And um, the story never was followed up. And they told the rest of the information in the uh, chief of OMS's document was ignored until I picked it up. The, but the truth drugs thing, you know, the way it was discussed is important because the reason they chose not to use drugs as part of the enhanced interrogation program, unless there's even a higher or separate SAP that did that, which is possible, or they did that at Guantanamo, I believe, um, or in other ways with the military. There's lots of ways to hide programs. Um, that the uh, anyway, if they used so-called truth drugs to uh, on interrogation, that it would raise 
um, flags for congressional investigators, for some people in the press. And, you know, they, they don't want a replay of the church committee and other revelations that occurred in the 1970s about CIA um, use of drugs and experiments and MK Ultra. That, they, that really burned them and uh, um, caused them a lot of problems. So they, just, they determined, supposedly, that they would not use these drugs. Um, they used other drugs, by the way, as I point out. And people, you know, so to, to facilitate torture. So, for instance, they used blood thinning medications. Um, one of the primary uh, ways in which uh, uh, torture that's used by the CIA is called stress positions, which you're, you're made to um, get into a very uncomfortable position and you really can't move from that position. I mean, anyone who's maybe crouched down and stays in that crouch for a long period of time doing gardening or whatever knows how uncomfortable it feels to just say, be in a crouch for a while. Well, imagine you have to be in a crouch. You can't get up because you're chained to the floor that way. <laughs> or you, um, you know, if you do get up or move, you're going to get hit in the head, you know, uh, or you're not going to get anything to eat or whatever. And so um, they use they use military. It's a form of torture that, that was derived and discussed by the early MK Ultra people, and it's in the Q-Bark manual. Uh, they felt it was a very effective form of torture because um, they felt that the prisoner would see it more as their own body was against them, not just the interrogator. Who said, oh, I could could show sympathy. Gee, I'm so sorry you have to do this. Why don't you cooperate with us? And the thing that's torturing me is no one's hitting me. No one's my own thighs and legs while I'm in the crouch are cramping up and are painful. My own body is attacking itself. So, um, you know, they use these stress positions uh, um, as part of what, you know, you know, part of what they were doing. Uh, I think there was more I was going to say. I apologize. I don't remember where I was going with that. But uh, it- as you were talking about the stress positions and so many Americans, I mean, like my father's an example, right? Just like your average Trump voting white male American tends to think that, you know, crouching positions and loud noise and sleep deprivation, that's not really torture. You know, if you're not, if you're not cutting people open, it's not torture. If you're not shocking their testicles, it's not torture, you know? Right. Uh, But what's interesting to me is I went to West Point where I was a cat and and hazing used to be a really big deal Mm. there. Yes. Um, the amount of attention and pressure that the military has put on the academy to make sure that no more, you know, hazing of any sort goes on uh, is remarkable when we consider what the intelligence services, sometimes the military, are doing to foreigners, right? Doing to enemy combatants. Yes. I mean, you if you if you were to be found out that you were putting cadets in stress positions, they still used to do it while I was there. But when I went mm. back to teach. If, if you'd have done that to a cadet, you'd have been immediately expelled, which oh. I just think is, is an interesting dichotomy to, yes. you know, what's okay overseas and, and, and what we think is acceptable here at home. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, yeah, well, the, the, um, the uh, uh, military um, in the uh, 1980s stopped uh, using uh, waterboarding um, as part of the SEER program. Well, almost all of the military, for some reason, the Navy's own SEER program um, utilized uh, waterboarding. And the reason they did that supposedly was because the guy who was in charge of it had been waterboarded when he was a trainee years before. And it was sort of like, hey, if I did it, sort of the analogy would be, well, I was phased, you know, you can 
what's wrong with today's baby generation? They can take it too. So that was kind of the Navy guys, Navy's position was um, we're not going to give up waterboarding our own men as part of the SEER training because uh, that's what we've always done. Finally, the Navy did back down. And of course, the reason it was, it was, it was inducing what they called, you know, learned helplessness in, the, uh, uh, um, in their own men. Um, learned helplessness was a term that was uh, uh, created by a psychologist known as Martin Seligman. And it was, became a model for inducing a state of kind of uh, internal psychological and physiological collapse. And was also used as a model for uh, what could bring about depression. The idea is that you know, there's inescapable stress, inescapable danger. And at that point, the organism just starts to shut down. So learned, what does that mean? They didn't read it in a book. Learned in the sense of behavioral uh, um, research, like Pavlovian, right? You learn a response. It's learned because it's conditioned. Um, it's a conditioned response. And um, it's, it's incredibly debilitating. I'm sure many people who were hazed carry places like West Point and elsewhere, you know, carried those injuries from that, you know, their entire lives. And that happened to some of the SEER trainees as well. Um, even as back as the 1950s, people were, you know, there were stories of men, and one was covered in Newsweek, of a guy suing the military for, you know, being harmed in the SEER program. And I still occasionally get emails, because I've written about this, from different people saying, oh, I was, yeah, I was injured in the, you know, by SEER training and this and that, and I'm trying to get benefits, and can you help me? Can't really do too much for them beyond what, you know, referring them to, uh, you know, the sources for my articles, and they can follow up with legal if they wish, but uh, it'd be very difficult for them. But it's great to hear that they stopped the hazing at West Point. <laughs> But yes, you're absolutely correct. It's uh, outrageous that, uh, racist in the end probably, that the U.S. feels that it can, you know, use stress positions, for instance, uh, against uh, people, you know, who are uh, foreign, but not, of course, at home. Uh, doesn't mean they don't use other things at home. They call this, uh, what we're talking about, torture light, L-I-T-E, or, you know, psychological versus physical torture. These are arbitrary distinctions. The fact is, in discussions with people who've been tortured um, without any prompting, the, the torture victims usually will say, those who were tortured by American military or CIA, will say the worst of torture for them was either the sleep deprivation or the isolation, use of solitary confinement, deep solitary confinement. And it was, you know, not just solitary confinement alone, but solitary confinement, for instance, in a room that was painted all white and had the lights on all day. And uh, you didn't know what time it, it ever was. And they weren't feeding you enough. And um, you might be subjected to weird noises or loud noises and music. And uh, this is a way, what you're doing is uh, uh, making solitary confinement into a form of sensory deprivation. And these are attacks on, you know, this was studied too. This is the study goes back to that DDD research that I was mentioning that the military and the CIA did in the 1950s, in which it was, um, uh, um, in fact, there was tons of uh, research into sensory deprivation, uh, millions and millions of dollars, hundreds and hundreds of studies in the 1950s and 60s until the, suddenly the uh, um, research by the mid-70s disappeared. Why? Because the military and the CIA weren't funding it anymore. And they weren't, you know, they'd already determined, they'd already 
I guess, gotten pretty much all the info they needed for their for the torture. And so domestically, yeah, a lot you know, thousands of people remain in solitary confinement in, in America, most notoriously at the supermax prisons. And in fact, one finding that came out of, uh, it's in my article, as a lot of things are, was that uh, how much the CIA consulted with and worked with the uh, Federal Bureau of Prisons, right? And that at one point, the f uh, personnel from the Federal Bureau of Prisons uh, invited CIA uh, personnel to come and tour the Supermax prisons, <laughs> you know, and learn from them about what they were doing. So, this, you know, there's a lot of interpenetration um, between uh, the CIA and, and uh, um, not just the military, but, but other components of U.S. society academia and, and uh, say, places, police and Bureau of Prisons. Yeah, it's, kind of, it's all kind of not so diabolical that I'm saying it, but yet it's all 100% true. Dr. K, I wanted to ask you about, in examining James Mitchell and Bruce Jessen and their, their work in this matter, mm -hmm. you spent a career as a working psychologist. Mm -hmm. How do you view those men now? What what In terms of... of medical contemporary, if that's the, the nicest word I could use. Mm -hmm. um, how do you see that for yourself? Well, these people, you know, uh, Mitchell and Justin and other, by the way, they, these are the names they've allowed us to know. And, um, but there were other, you know, in the document, it says, you know, Mitchell and Justin worked, quote, with other OTS psychologists, unquote, we don't know who they are, in developing this program. So it's Mitchell and Justin. But all those people, therefore, who worked to create these torture programs and then involved themselves in some of them as Mitchell and Justin did in actually implementing them as, as interrogators themselves. Um, they, they've certainly stepped way beyond the bounds of, of what ethically or legally uh, can be. Well, I'm not, I, I can't say legally, I'm not an attorney, but uh, I would guess legally many people say in terms of what, what their professional um, training would have them be. A psychologist should work, for the benefit of their clients, of, of other human beings they work with, they should work to, for the beneficence of all humankind. But these people allied themselves with government organizations and to study, to use the, the same methods that they had learned about statistics and human emotion, etc., and, and use that to destroy human beings, to break them down at the surface of some policy. Um, I asked one of them once, I mean, um, not, not a CIA psychologist, but a psychologist who worked with um, the Naval, uh, the NCIS, Naval Criminal Intelligence, uh, I mean, Investigation Service, and the, um, I, who had, was involved in some of the interrogations at Guantanamo. And I asked him at a public forum back in 2007, and I said, you know what, here you have these people, you're, 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 um, they're unprivileged combatants, they're enemy combatants, they don't have some Geneva rights, and uh, they're the enemy, but then tomorrow the, uh, they're, your they're your friend. This kind of really happened. I, I didn't know it was going to happen. It kind of happened in places like Syria, right? And uh, where Islamic uh, um, jihadists, uh, fundamentalist jihadists who were, um, you know, battling Assad um, were the same people as were drawn many of them from you know, fighting in Afghanistan against U.S. troops. Anyway, the, uh, for Al-Qaeda and others. And uh, this guy said, well, uh, I said, well, what, what would you do then? He goes, 
I would do, you know, it's just like, these are my orders. Um, it's not, you know, I don't go outside my lane. It's a very military thing to say, right? I don't, yeah. uh, I don't leave my lane. I would, well, I would just follow the order that they gave me. You wouldn't be uh, disturbed by having, you know, what would just happen. How do you account for that in your head? I don't even ask those questions of myself. You just do it. You follow orders. Or we're really back in Nazi territory um, in the sense of, uh, and of course, the Nazi experience was the human experience. People sometimes will say things like, oh, the Nazi is if, oh, that was a special case situation that uh, is outside, so far outside the norm, it can never happen again. But actually, what we can see is it may be on a somewhat smaller scale, but it has happened again. And we don't really know what's going on now uh, um, exactly. You know, we know that on some level the torture continues. Um, the enhanced the program A was this, you know, was at least as we understand it and as it bureaucratically existed within that organization was shut down um, so that uh, an MK Ultra was supposedly shut down. But, you know, what, if you study the history of the CIA and these kind of subject uh, matters that undertaken by both the CIA and the military is that they, show, they pop up later. And they are um, under a different name, a different department, a different SAP, Special Access Program Approval. Um, and that, so I have no doubt that it continues. I, I suspected um, that, th that there was an experiment way back in when I first started more deeply looking into all these issues, which really wasn't until about, for me, about 2006 or so, when it just, you know, uh, um, hit me. I mean, I knew what was going on. I was against it. But I didn't start to undertake my own research until about 2006. And I believed, you know, I thought, I was suspicious and thought, well, I wonder if they're not doing something connected to MKUltra. And I can tell you that I was not happy to be proven right. When I read the, o, the chief o, OMS uh, uh, document, um, I, was, I was kind of crushed. In other words, I, 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 even in my wildest dreams, I didn't realize that things were that, uh, that connected. If I, you know, okay, so, for instance, uh, the OMS chief said, and this is a quote, um, um, the, the antecedents of the unit that had created the enhanced interrogation program, Program A, had overseen much of the uh, um, MKUltra interrogation research in the 1950s and 60s, published still relevant classified papers on the merits of various interrogation techniques, and contributed heavily to the 1963 QBARC Counterintelligence Interrogation Manual, and its derivative 1983 Human Resources Manual, which, by the way, I didn't talk about yet here, but there was a, another torture manual the CIA produced and used it in training of torturers in other countries, uh, you know, allied countries, particularly in Latin America. Um, and these people had assisted even directly in early interrogations. And... Um, what they said was that the, both the SEER people and the initial um, agency thinking about what to do with the torture and stuff drew on these early MKUltra, um, CIA, and military-funded studies. They were directly linked to them, right? And in fact, the chief, and fine, it wasn't just, well, theoretical. The chief of interrogations for Program A was, a, uh, I believe, a man, but uh, I guess it possibly could have been a woman. But um, 
I think I, I've seen him referred to as a he in the, in the document. The, uh, that this officer in charge of CIA interrogations in Program A was um, um, given that post. This was in the Senate um, Intelligence Committee's report or the, uh, the, the, that we have of it, the uh, executive summary that came out a few years back. Um, it, was, it was given to this post despite the fact he'd been accused in the past of inappropriate use of torture techniques drawn from that same MKUltra-inspired 1983 uh, um, human resources manual, they called it, but a really torture manual. So the, uh, the CIA chief of interrogations um, had to have been an older individual and uh, um, had been around the block, and he'd, he'd already been called out um, on some level for involvement in, uh, in torture, uh, MKUltra-derived torture. So this is what they were doing. I was shocked to read all this. And yet, uh, here and there, I will say a couple of times something is mentioned, but in general, uh, in the mainstream press, um, but if it weren't for podcasts like this, for you guys and a few others out there, and for the ability these days to post your own things on the internet, uh, and occasionally uh, an openness by certain media to, uh, to some of this kind of information. I, I, um, for instance, Al Jazeera America published an article which I pointed out the connections with the Office of Technical Services and MKUltra you know, back when the Senate report was released in 2000, gosh, I think it was 14. And um, so these things are known, but in general, they're not known. It's like known and not known. Maybe it's that cognitive dissonance I was talking about. Maybe it was um, institutional um, uh, um, uh, censorship that occurs both witting, you know, both consciously and unconsciously by editors and, uh, um, publishers, um, you know, or maybe it's, you know, something else that I can't even think of or some combination most likely. Um, this, it's just kind of, uh, so whenever I go over this, I have no idea how your listeners are, are responding to this. Of course, the nature of a podcast is that it's one way that there's a listener and, and they cannot feedback at the, in the in real time anyway, to what I and you are talking about. But, um, I hope that they will take this kind of information and, and uh, um, use it somehow, use it in a way that um, challenges the mainstream narrative, which these days is, yeah, the CIA are, are good guys. <laughs> and um, Which nothing could be further from the truth when you, when you really get down and look at it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things like doing this, doing the same thing over and over again, even after it doesn't work, is like the definition of insanity. Yes. And you could argue that our approach to lauding and supporting the CIA is—it's almost like Stockholm syndrome, or it's almost like an abusive relationship. Yes. You know, where where the CIA keeps beating us down and, and hurting our democracy time and again, and we're saying, "Well, no, he only does that because he loves me." You know, right? It's right. it's insane what the American yes. people accept. Yes, well, you hit on well. That's a, an excellent example. You could be a psychologist, <laughs> in which the human nature is such that it can, you know, if you provide it with uh, differential forms of response, harsh punishment, and then you know some kind of uh, lesser or positive, you know, some kind of su uh, supportive behavior, you ties the person to them, like the the, the so-called battered wife syndrome, right? And and people who they actually become attached, they expect that. There's a model in their head of what uh, an attachment is, and that model 
is uh, one in which the person who or institution you're attached to can be abusive at times. And um, it's, uh, it's very strange. And, and believe me, no one's looked at these kind of things more than the CIA. Um, you know, Mitchell, James Mitchell and Bruce Jessen, their, their initial contracts were to uh, uh, um, identify uh, the current state of behavioral science on theories and methods for influencing, you know, beliefs, motivations, and behaviors. Well, and for what purpose? Well, oh, particularly, by the way, from individuals from non-Western countries, we can thank um, uh, Greg Miller at the Washington Post, who, find, who got a hold of and published, even though he didn't understand everything in it, but he still did a great job in, in making sure that these, these uh, non-classified CIA contracts for Mitchell and Justin were out in the public domain. One thing, the fact they were non-classified, though, certainly is interesting. And I feel uh, that Mitchell and Jessen, you know, were, were definitely singled out to be the guys, the fall guys. I mean, they were real bad guys. But they, you know, by leaving, oh, we get, if it was Mitchell and Jessen, we got them, they're out, it's over. This was all Mitchell and Jessen. Mitchell and Jessen, you know, exerted some kind of a hocus pocus and convinced everyone to torture. And now that they're gone, the torture went away. But that's, that's not true at all. Mitchell and Jessen didn't create the policy. Mitchell and Jessen worked with other psychologists in the CIA and probably other medical people on this. And, um, and uh, the whole concept, the concepts were not created by Mitchell and Jessen. You know, and it seems highly unlikely the two outsiders, you know, hired in could suddenly convince everybody to do this research program. I think, you know, the, the uh, origin of Program A began in... Um, uh, you know, began somewhere deep within the Office of Technical Services, the science people, the scientific, science and research directorate of the CIA, which, you know, how, you know has a whole history and a culture that, you know, um, of which MKUltra was, was part of it. And that's what the OMS chief's memoir makes clear, is that there was a lot of interest in the kinds of research done under MKUltra, and that informed, you know, how they were going to approach this, this interrogation situation, and they set up a special program to do it. The other, Program B, I believe, was a continuation of the kind of things the CIA's been doing all along, but they were just kind of got involved in the detention part of the program, which they weren't as much before, or at least not as concertedly. And in uh, the rendition program, which really had um, begun under Clinton, and even goes back farther, there, there are stories, I, I wrote one article, with um, Hank Alborelli some years ago talks about a case known within the CIA as the Kelly case, which mentions, you know, kidnapping this guy and uh, renditioning him <coughs> to Panama for interrogations. You know, and this was in the 1950s. So there were, um, you know, there were definitely Program B, which was the kind of unmonitored, um, less controlled CIA torture program was, you know, probably related to the fact that's how the CIA was handling things. Although previously, you know, a lot of what the CIA did was in today, I believe this is still the case. They try and use foreign, um, you know, foreign assets to do a lot of the dirty work for them and they supervise. That's kind of the empire's, you know, way of it. We're in charge, but we don't get our hands dirty as much. You know, uh, that changed after 9-11. No doubt there were other things I haven't talked about here. 
such as you know the wish for revenge that occurred after the terror attacks. Um, no matter what uh, some of your listeners think about how the 9/11 came down or not, it doesn't matter. Many people, in this, in terms of what I'm talking about, because many people have accepted the official narrative, and you know, it raised feelings of hatred and revenge. And I believe that played some role as well as to how some of these interrogators treated the prisoners. Well, Dr. K, I think uh, I think that is a good point for us to stop for today. Sure. Um, I uh, thank you so much for uh, coming on. Will you uh, let our listeners know real quick uh, where they can find your work? Uh, well, right now I'm publishing uh, most of my work at medium.com. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm not blogging per se anymore, uh, which would you know involve a lot of uh, more frequent postings. Uh, I used to do that at my blog, which is still up, known as Invictus, I-N-V-I-C-T-U-S, at uh, valtinesblog.blogspot.com or um, you can go to medium.com and search for my name, Jeffrey Kay, as an author and you see I've, I've written a lot of other uh, articles about torture um, as well as uh, my interest in the biological warfare um, campaign conducted during the Korean War and trying to get the truth out about what happened there. Well, uh, thank you oh, again. And my, I hope, uh, hope, and my uh, book. hope that you'll come on again. Thank you. Okay. I enjoy being, uh, talking with you guys. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks a lot, sir. Okay. Thanks, Amy. All right. Take care. Okay. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www. .fortressonahill.com iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time.